Welcome back to the program. If I said we're going to talk about a story that involved grand homes, yachts, priceless paintings, messy romances, private investigators, and armored limousines, you probably wouldn't think it was the story of the family and a group of men who have been painted as the greatest political villains of the 21st century. The fact is, it is the story of the Koch brothers, Fred and Bill, David and Charles, and their father Fred, who was one of the founders of the John Birch Society. The question is not just how this political and economic dynasty has become so powerful. It's how they have created such fear in their opponents, out of all proportion to their relatively limited political success. Also, the membrane between the Koch's libertarian ideas and the GOP and the Tea Party social agenda may be a sometime marriage of convenience, and one that may not be destined for the long haul. Like so many businessmen who think politics will bend to their will and money, they are often surprised. The first full-scale piece that really gives us insight into the Koch brothers is written by our guest, Daniel Shulman. Daniel Shulman is a senior editor in the Washington Bureau of Mother Jones. He's a founding member of the magazine's investigative journalism team. His work has appeared in numerous other publications, and he's the author of the new book, Sons of Wichita, How the Koch Brothers Became America's Most Powerful and Private Dynasty. Daniel Shulman, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be there. It's great to have you here. What's fascinating about this story is that on the one hand, it is the story of this grand dynasty of family not unlike the Rockefellers or so many other politically involved fortunes in the past, and yet the Cokes have been painted as such villains in, in a contemporary sense. Talk a little bit about that disconnect. Well, I think, you know, it's certainly in the 2010 and 2011 time frame, you really see um, Charles and David Koch um, uh, burst onto the political scene, especially in uh, the popular consciousness, especially. Of course, there are four Koch brothers, and that was sort of one of the things that was lost in in, in that time frame. Everybody associates the Koch brothers um, with Charles and David Koch. Um, the, in terms of their politics, um, Charles and David in particular spent a lot of time, you know, they've been involved um, in libertarian politics going back to the uh, 60s in the case of Charles. Um, and they've had a fairly methodical political strategy. At first, they were trying to work through a libertarian movement. Um, when that got a little bit too goofy for them, um, they, they, they worked more through the Republican Party, though, as you alluded to earlier, their politics don't always align with um, the GOP, especially on, uh, you know, socialist, social issues, um, reproductive rights, gay marriage, um, and things of that nature. Um, but yeah, I view these guys as very much um, in the mold of the Rockefellers or the Carnegies in that their influence is going to be felt in so many ways um, that we can't even fathom now, but in for, in for the centuries to come. And yet in many ways, when you look at the total picture, their philanthropic work and what they have done for universities and in medicine and in so many other areas it is arguable that that philanthropic work has actually had more influence and more power than some of the political money that they've spent. I think that's probably true. And, and the one thing that I think it's important to understand is that in, you know, in Charles and David Koch, they're, they're often lumped together, but these guys are two very different guys, and they both um, have a very different approach towards philanthropy. Uh, David Koch, uh, people have told, friends of his have said to me, you know, He's really much more of a classic philanthropist. Um, Charles Koch, his, his 
philanthropy has really been much more aimed at the public public policy sphere. You know, his lifelong mission really has been to mainstream um, libertarian ideas. And I think in that realm, he's had a major impact. Um, I think the fact that we're even talking about libertarianism today as a popular ideology um, owes to a lot of the work that he's done. You mentioned uh, his giving to universities. A lot of this has been to um, fund you know, free market economic uh, uh, departments and things of that nature. Now, in the medical realm, David Coe, you know, given hundreds of millions of dollars um, that have gone towards cancer research, you know, where I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, not too far from uh, my house, there's the um, there's this new M- massive MIT lab that he funded to the tune of $100 million, where a lot of innovative research is taking place. Um, so absolutely, they've had major impacts in, in other areas as well. One of the things that, one of the disconnects that is so interesting with respect to the Kochs is how much money they have given, particularly, as you say, David, to science in various areas, and yet their attitude in terms of of government regulation and the environment, and particularly as it relates to climate change, in so many ways seems to run counter to that. I agree with that, and that's something that I sort of struggled with as I was doing this book, because, you know, the one thing that I do believe about their their ideology and their politics is that these guys are very much true believers. When it comes to climate change, though, their strategy has been somewhat more cynical. These guys are anti-regulation just across the board. So it wouldn't surprise me at all to see them fighting climate change on a regulatory front. But they've given money to a lot of groups that have actually created doubt about the existence of climate change. Now, Charles and David Koch, you know, these guys are very scientifically-minded guys. Both of them attended MIT, earned advanced degrees from MIT. These are guys that, that care about science. So to see them funding um, causes that, that undermine science is, uh, I, you know, you, you could say that's certainly a disingenuous strategy, even if your long-term goal um, is, you know, the anti-regulatory one. Talk a little bit about decisions that you have found, particularly that Charles Koch has made with respect to Koch Industries and the business that in some ways were really politically motivated, even to the point that they ran counter to what his best business interests were? Well, that's the interesting thing about Coke Industries is, you know, one thing, and, and I should go back a little ways, is that, you know, Charles Koch in the 70s when he was funding libertarian ideas, the one thing that he was trying to do was to get the business community on board with his, uh, basically, he thought that a lot of people in the business community and in the Republican Party um, were essentially hypocrites because they would attack um, entitlements and the social safety net for the poor, but they would seek handouts um, for, for their corporations via subsidies, tax breaks, and that sort of thing. He felt like this sort of corporate welfare was really uh, made it unable to press this free market agenda because... Uh, you looked like you were really talking out of both sides of your mouth. So, you know, at Coke Industries, which is really guided by um, Charles's libertarian philosophy, it, you know, it runs on something called market-based management. So, uh, you know, it, it, even there's been instances where, you know, one division, say, had developed a uh, very environmentally friendly incinerator. 
And this division wanted to work with the EPA to strengthen rules um, for other sorts of incinerators. This would, have, this would have strengthened the competitive position of this particular division, but it would have run counter to the corporate philosophy, which is really Charles's political philosophy, um, that, you know, regulations are generally bad and you should not, you know, partner with government on these sorts of things. So that's just one example. Um, but, but very much, you know, if you talk to you know, congressional uh, staffers on the Hill um, who deal with Coke lobbyists, they'll, they'll tell you that they're not really sort of rent seekers. Um, they're, not, they're not out there looking for subsidies and things of that nature. Talk a little bit about the father, Fred Koch, and his philosophy, his founding of the John Birch Society, why, and the ways in which that philosophical underpinning has really seeped into these four brothers. Sure. So, you know, basically, uh, the formative experience in Fred Koch's life was working in the Soviet, when his firm worked in the Soviet Union in the early 1930s. And now the reason for this is that, you know, in 1925, he went into partnership with a couple of engineers uh, in Wichita, Kansas, and they began selling a refining process um, across the Midwest. It's a bit of a long story, but the short of it is that um, his company, which was called Winkler Coke Engineering, ended up getting pretty relentlessly sued by um, basically what was a consortium of the major oil companies at that time called Universal Oil Products. So they could no longer really sell their process in the U.S. They had to turn to foreign markets. One foreign market that was very hungry for modern refining technology was the Soviet Union, which had just undergone revolution. Um, Their oil industry, which was pretty formidable um, at the turn of the century, had been decimated. Um, This was a bit of a dicey proposition because there was a lot of American firms that would not do business with the Soviet Union. We did not have diplomatic relations with them at that time. But Fred Koch's business, uh, Fred Koch's company went ahead and did. Um, And they really helped to modernize the Soviet oil industry, which in turn helped to industrialize the country. Um, So Fred Koch spent a few months there overseeing the work that they're they're doing. um, And he's horrified by by what he sees there. He's horrified by communism. Um, And he returns home vowing to do everything he can to stop the spread of communism and um, you know, later on in his life, he would go on to uh, be a founding member of the John Birch Society. He was literally in the room um, when Robert Welch lays out his vision for that group. Um, and he became really quite paranoid about the spread of socialism and communism. He saw it in every move of government. Um, he saw it in the labor unions. He saw it in the, he, he believed basically the civil rights movement, uh, you know, was being agitated by, um, by, by the Soviets and things of that nature. Um, and this ideology really was something that influenced um, his sons, particularly Charles and David, and to, I would say, to a lesser extent, Bill and Frederick. Um, Frederick, who's the oldest brother, is actually politically um, quite liberal. Mm-hmm. But the brothers all grew up kind of, you know, hearing about their, their father's views of government um, about socialism, and things of that nature. And so they were deeply uh, affected by all of it. Talk about it in the context of the civil rights movement, the attitudes that Fred had with regard to racial issues and the way he saw the civil rights movement as an element of, of 
the Communist Party, really, with respect to the Birch Society, and the degree to which those racial views, in, in your opinion, filtered down to Charles and David? You know, I think that um, in terms of Fred's views, he thought that, uh, you know, and this was a, a common view among members of the John Birch Society at that time, um, that race t- racial tensions were erupted, which were erupting, you know, er- you know, all over the United States in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, he believed both were being fomented by, um, you know, Soviet provocateurs, essentially. Um, you know, the, Mar- uh, the, the Birch Society invade against Martin Luther King um, uh, and things of that nature, um, uh, the Civil Rights Act, and, and, and things like that. Um, now, in terms of his sons, I'm not, I, I, I have never gotten the sense that, um, you know, that these guys are um, bigoted in any way. So I'm not sure if I can necessarily speak to how those particular views influence them, but I can say certainly that um, Fred Koch was, was quite paranoid about, about the civil rights movement. Certainly Fred Koch couldn't imagine a black president in his lifetime. Oh, I mean, I certainly think that would be, yes, that, that, that goes without question. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people of that era, that would also be hard um, to fathom. I want to talk a little bit about how effective the Cokes have really been with all the hundreds of millions of dollars they've spent, for over $400 million in the last cycle, and, and whether that money has really bought them the kind of political influence and political power that one might think it would have. You know, it's an interesting question, and it's, it can be somewhat hard to assess these things. If you look purely at the 2012 election, um, you, 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 you would have to say their political efforts were a major failure. Um, you know, here these guys, and, and this is one misconception about the Cokes, that they're really putting all this money into, into elections. In fact, what it is is, you know, they have a network of a few hundred high-net-worth individuals um, who they organize through regular donor conferences, and it's through this mechanism that they're able to raise so much money. Um, so essentially in the last election, they raised $400 million with the goal of uh, defeating the president and uh, taking back the Senate. Obviously, they failed on both counts, and in terms of their political strategy, it, it, you know, in terms of their political strategy via their, their flagship advocacy group, Americans for Prosperity, not terribly savvy. Um, you know, one thing people in the Obama campaign told me was that they were initially terrified of the Kochs, and really, um, you know, they found very quickly that Americans for Prosperity's ads were a little bit all over the map. They really weren't well produced, and they weren't very, very well targeted. Now, if you look at the Kochs, if you kind of bring it back, things back a little bit, and you look at things starting from the 1960s, the Kochs have been fairly effective at mainstreaming a, uh, their ideology, which is a free market anti-regulatory one. Again, these guys are really libertarians and were you know, pretty seminal in the founding of the modern libertarian movement. Um, I think also you know, another way, a place where they've been effective is in providing organizational and financial support to the Tea Party. I know the Kochs um, distanced themselves from this movement um, once it got a bit controversial, certainly once it got a bit controversial, 
but the fact of the matter is there's just absolutely no question that through through Americans for Prosperity and other groups that they helped to fund, um, they really provided the key organizational support that helped to get this movement off the ground. Um, and, you know, the Tea Party is sort of fracturing now, but you do have to say that it, it, that it was certainly quite effective um, in certain areas. Now, the, the Koch's working with the Republican Party, hand in glove, um, is a fairly recent phenomenon. They long had a, a pretty uneasy relationship with the Republicans because they really don't share the same views on a lot of issues. Um, the, the question going forward is whether the Kochs take what influence they now have and move the Republican Party um, on key issues like perhaps immigration, um, maybe civil liberties, um, and you know maybe even some of the social conservative views that have really um, come back to bite the Republicans, especially in 2012, with you know comments like legitimate rape and, and, and things like that. Right. The other side of that, though, the other side of that same coin is the degree to which issues of class divide and economics become more pronounced in the, potentially in the next election cycle. It really plays against the Kochs and what they're trying to put forward. You know, I think in some ways it is very difficult for the Kochs to advance aspects of their agenda. I mean, for instance, um, Charles Koch is against the minimum wage, you know, on the grounds that he believes it sort of it, that it hurts the labor force. Um, you know, they're generally against entitlements and, and things of that nature. Now, for extraordinarily wealthy men um, who have never known a moment in their lives uh, of financial distress um, and wouldn't know what it's like to live on $2 a day because they're making, you know, $2 million an hour, um, I think it's it's hard for people to understand that their that their agenda is you know goes anywhere beyond themselves. Talk a little bit about what they see, particularly Charles, how he sees his role going forward. How long is he prepared? What is your sense of how long he's prepared to keep doing this and putting money into these political causes, even with the limited success that he's had? Oh, I mean, I, this has been his sort of life's, in, this has been his life's work. I mean, there's kind of two parts to his legacy. One is the company, and one is his, you know, public policy legacy. Um, so in terms of the company, I think he said, you know, they're going to carry me out feet first. Um, and I really think the same goes uh, in terms of his role in politics. Um, you know, Charles, I don't think, really enjoys the, you know, the down-and-dirty um, political stuff. He's much more interested um, in education, but really, to him, it's all sort of the, a means to an end, which is um, basically creating social change in this country in, you know, in, in, in his sort of free-market libertarian mold. Has it done their opposition well to to paint them as the kind of evil villains that they have you know um i don't i think that it might be an effective fundraising strategy and it might help to turn out 
uh, a certain segment of the Democratic base. Um, but I think the type of stuff that Harry Reid, Senator Harry Reid, is saying on the Senate floor, you know, calling the Kochs un-American and things of that nature, um, doesn't strike, you know, uh, doesn't, doesn't sound that good to many Americans. Um, so I think it really could end up turning a lot of people off. off. You know, I have another theory, which is that the Democrats really helped to empower the Kochs mm-hmm. by demonizing them, essentially. Um, this, whole, this whole mythology was um, created around them, and in some ways it drove Republicans who were not naturally allied with the Kochs, you know, into their arms and, you know, made their donor seminars, which, frankly, these things were absolutely boring. I mean, nobody wanted to attend them originally when they started in 2003. These were just, you know, marathon free market economics lectures. By 2009, 2010, these events had become uh, just an absolute fundraising juggernaut and a model for what I would say, you know, call politics 2.0, you know, the decentralization of party power, um, you know, into the hands of people like the Kochs and, you know, obviously on the Democratic side, there's, there's similar opera- operations where you can have, you know, wealthy individuals driving the agenda much more so uh, than, than political parties. Talk a little bit about the women of the Koch family, about which we hear virtually nothing. Yeah, um, and in fact, you know, their, their wives, uh, as all our wives are, are just, you know, pivotal figures in their lives. Um, uh, with Charles, uh, he was a very driven, um, still is a very driven guy, but in his 20s and 30s, he really had a bit of tunnel vision when it came to building his business. Um, and, you know, friends of his say that Liz brought basically brought him down to earth a little bit, um, gave him a little bit more dimension um, and an ability to connect with other people. Um, so she is, you know, she is obviously a major influence um, on him, and she is by all accounts, you know, a very interesting, sassy lady who, uh, who apparently um, has the mouth of a sailor. Um, and uh, David's wife, similarly, uh, has had a major influence on his life, and it's played out in a bit of a different way. You know, um, David Koch was a bit of a playboy, um, certainly had a reputation for throwing really hedonistic parties out in the uh, Hamptons and in Aspen where he has a home. Um, didn't get married till quite late in life, and part of this owed to this battle that was going on between the four Koch brothers. Um, he, I think you could say he had some major trust issues because if he could be enduring what he was enduring with his brothers, you know, what about a husband and a wife? So um, one of the major, you know, experience in, in David Koch's life was surviving a plane crash in 1991 that killed a number of people. Um, and after that, I think that was a bit of a wake-up call. Um, he had gone out for the first time with Julia Koch just uh, very shortly before that. Um, and, at, and it wasn't too long, you know, after that that they were in a, um, in a relationship and eventually um, got married. Another major role that she's played in his life is helping to 
bring him back together with his brother Bill. Um, I mentioned that these brothers had spent many years feuding um, in court. In some ways, this was just really one of the most epic family feuds in history, and you know, it involved private eyes and um, you know, suspicions of moles working within the outfits of David and Charles Koch and of Bill. Um, and when these brothers were able to finally settle their legal differences, um, you know, it was Julia and Bill's wife that actually helped to bring the brothers back together. And now they actually, you know, spend time together and can consider each other friends again. Is there a younger generation, a next generation of Cokes that are coming along, and are they politically involved? Yeah, um, Dave, David Cokes and David and Julia Cokes' children, I think the oldest, they have three kids, the, their, son, their oldest son is 14. Um, so, you know, at some point, certainly, they will stand to inherit, uh, you know, a, a, a sizable fortune. Um, and control of what is just a massive conglomerate. Um, now, Charles Koch, Charles and Liz Koch have two children. Um, their eldest daughter is not involved in the family company. Um, she's, she's really been in, involved in the arts. She started a kind of a boutique publishing house. Um, their son, Chase, uh, works, works for the family company, and... You know, Charles Koch has always been quite coy about the issue of succession, um, but it's clear that he's being groomed for bigger and better things within the company. Now, um, Chase Koch uh, has certainly been involved to a degree in the political network that um, his father and uncle uh, have, you know, are overseeing. Uh, it's unclear to me whether he has really what the, the spark and the passion for this that his father certainly has. Talk a little bit about the secrecy that surrounds the Cokes. Their, their company is private. In fact, it's the second largest private company in the U.S., and they don't give a lot of interviews. You were, were you know, really had to work hard to penetrate the veil of all of this. Talk a little bit about that secrecy. Yeah, you know, the, the, this is just a very, very private family, and this goes back a long ways to, you know, their father's time when, um, you know, he was a, a fairly controversial guy during his day because of his speechifying against um, communism and his role in um, the Birch Society, which was a very, very controversial outfit at that time, um, and there were a lot of allegations about racism and, and things like that directed at the Birch Society uh, of that time. So I think that caused Fred Koch to become very, very private, you know, not necessarily attaching his name to the businesses he controlled, um, not giving interviews and things of that nature. I really think that reticence rubbed off um, on his sons. And in terms of the reason why the company is is private and so fiercely private. Um, this, this also comes back to sort of Charles's libertarian beliefs. He really um, doesn't want any interference from the government. And of course, if you become a public company, you have to, you know, deal with all sorts of, you know, financial regulators that you don't have to if you're a private firm. Um, and, you know, just in terms of you know, they're very careful about sort of curating their image. 
Um, and so, you know, you won't see them interviewed too often unless they know that they're talking to someone that they believe, to, to basically a friendly, to a friendly journalist, I would say, mm-hmm. someone that they're aligned with. How willing were any members of the family, or were they, to talk to you about this book? Um, when I started out, I sent letters to all the brothers, and um, the one that got back to me was actually Frederick Koch, mm-hmm. um, the eldest of the Koch brothers, and in some ways the most elusive. Um, you know, he was never in, he was never involved in the family company. He was a, he's been a patron of the arts. Um, he's restored a series of fabulous historic homes around the world, and really that's been uh, his passion. Um, so he actually invited me over to visit with him at um, this this townhouse he owns on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Um, it was actually one of the townhouses, one of three townhouses that were given. Uh, to the daughters of the dime store magnate uh, Woolworth. Um, and they were built for his daughters when they were married. So um, I was able to spend some time with him. Um, so, so that was great. And, you know, in terms of getting to know more about the brothers, I interviewed a huge amount of people who have known them. They're, you know, they're close friends and people going back to their elementary school days. Um, and finally, talk a little bit about how you see their influence playing out in the next election cycle, and uh, to what extent is Rand Paul their guy, and, and, and how will this libertarian bent play out within the context of, of what you sense they want to see in the next election cycle? Well, I think this next cycle is really going to be a test for them, because 2012 was such a debacle, frankly. Um, and if, you know they are not able to make the gains, which I think that they're expecting. Um, you know, their focus right now is really on taking back the Senate um, and sort of setting the table for 2016. If they can accomplish that, I think you'll see a major realignment um, within their political network. Um, the one thing about the Koch brothers, though, is that they very much learn from their mistakes, and you see them do this in their business, where they're not sentimental about certain aspects of their business. If it becomes unprofitable, if something's not quite working, they jettison it. Um, So, you know, 2014 is really going to be a make-or-break moment for them. Um, But they're pouring an unprecedented unprecedented amount of money into a midterm election. Um, You know, they're planning to spend $125 million through um, Americans for Prosperity alone, and this is really focused on going to be focused on targeting vulnerable uh, Democrats in the Senate. Um, In terms of Rand Paul and whether they'll get behind him, I think that's very much an open question. Rand Paul shares a lot of their politic, Mm -hmm. political beliefs, but there there, there were some Byzantine factional feuds that happened in the libertarian movement of the late 1970s and the early 80s, on which Ron Paul fell on the other side um, from the Cokes. So, there's not a natural alliance there, even though they're, you know, both of a libertarian bent. Um, you know, the Koch brothers are nothing if not pragmatic. So I think you'll see them get behind whoever can win. Um, and in terms, I think it's a very open question about, you know, the extent of their libertarian influence within the Republican Party. 
um, you know, I think they're a bit nervous about um, ticking off any of their newfound GOP allies, certainly by pushing um, aspects of their agenda that don't align with um, the traditional GOP message. Um, that said, they've amassed quite a bit of influence right now. So um, it, very might, it very well might be the time to sort of test out whether they can nudge things in their direction. Daniel Shulman, his book is Sons of Wichita, How the Koch Brothers Became America's Most Powerful and Private Dynasty. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.